You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, tonight we have um, Sharon Lauder with us. Now, if you've taken my classes over the years, you know Sharon. (laughs) Sharon is a regular teacher uh, for all my classes. Uh, Sharon and Mike, uh, in particular, they, uh, they typically will take a, take a turn in whatever class we're doing. And Sharon is a teacher, and she's a very good teacher. And tonight, she is going to be leading us in the whole question of risk. So let me lead us in prayer, and then I'm going to hand things over to Sharon, and she'll run with this, and then maybe later on we'll have, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. So let's start, let's start with prayer, though. Lord, thank you for your grace, thank you for your goodness, and thank you for this chance to gather together. Again, we say this, we don't take this for granted. We used to take it for granted, but we do not take it for granted. It is a gift that your people can gather together. And we thank you for the gift of technology where we could gather together online and in person. And so we pray tonight that all that we learn would not just be head knowledge, but would draw us deeper and deeper into our life with you. That's our desire. So we lift up uh, your, your daughter Sharon to you, and we pray that she would be a conduit, conduit of your truth and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so hello everyone. Is this working? Yep, it will be. Now it is. Hello? Better? Yeah. Okay. So once again, uh, from this class, we're working um, from one resource, which is uh, Water from the Deep Wells. We're on about chapter 11 in uh, Gerald Sitzer's novel. But I also um, drew upon uh, the work of a wonderful man named Donald Lewis, um, who was from Regent College, and he did a wonderful lecture series on um, missions. And so um, he passed just recently, and Regent made it um, available to the public. And so uh, once again, Regent is a wonderful resource. Um, and it's a great, wonderful podcast. They put it out as, and it's got his notes with it as well. And so I invite you to check that out as well. It's uh, really great. So in this class, we're going to be looking at four missionary pioneers and uh, talk also about what's going on at CA Church and what's going on in our denomination in general. So Christianity is a missionary faith, and it's important to keep that in mind because not all faiths are. Uh, Missions and risk are part of our discipleship process, and we are the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and so this is an imperative for us. So in Acts 1.8, Jesus spoke just before the ascension but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So I remember Mark Francisco, he explained this passage in one of his sermons, and the place is mentioned this way, and I don't know if any of you remember this, but it was Jerusalem represents people like us. Judea is the communities around you. Samaria are the people that are completely unlikely you, and even people you can't stand. And the ends of the earth is literally the ends of the earth, the world. So that's our command by the word of God. Amen? Uh, But a missionary attitude, as we read on, um, wasn't adopted easily 
by the church and the early church. And we see actually the first missions controversy in the book of Acts. And it's between Hellenized and Aramaic-speaking Jews. So Jews that were more a part of the Greek culture around them and those who continued to speak Aramaic. And those who continued to speak Aramaic wanted to keep Christianity within the context of Judaism. So they expected Gentiles um, to convert to Judaism first and then to be circumcised, follow dietary laws. But Peter, James, and Paul spoke against this in Acts 15. And the takeaway for us, and what's been the takeaway for the last 2,000 years, is that there's no need to convert to the dominant culture or to the culture that presents Christianity to you. So this allows missionaries to adapt the message to the cultures around them. And we keep these two things in mind. We learn the language and we adjust ourselves to cultural norms. And we present the faith that is culturally accessible, but not theologically compromised. So remember that, right? It's accessible to those who are presenting to you, but not theologically compromised. Okay? So the first thing we're going to look at is, is what does missionary devotion look like? So we've looked at in this course through a few different concepts to people in, as they've walked through it. So we looked at, say, for example, the Desert Fathers. And although maybe they lived um, really extreme lives in seclusion, um, we can take away from them the idea of we sometimes have to, you know, take solitude and have silence. And we remember that we are sojourners as we walk through this life. We went and we looked at life as rhythm, or the Christian life as rhythm, and we looked at the monastery and life in monasticism. And we might not be called to do that, but we might look at our life then as rhythm and as having, we devoting time to devotion. And also th seeing things like, say, Father, Brother Lawrence looked at it, that um, through everything we can see God moving and through the Holy Spirit and pray our way through our daily activities. And we can see our life out of chaos in order through rhythm. And so we can look at the missionary life as well this way. We may be looking at people tonight whose lives um, were very difficult at times, were very difficult from what you may experience. Um, but we can look at them and we can take something from it for when we do what we do on mission. Okay? So we're looking at it, we're going to see that it's characterized by sacrificial living, sometimes by isolation, loneliness, and danger. Uh, the willingness to take such risks really requires a certain devotion to God. So back in 1556, Ignatius of Loyola, he was the founder of the Jesuit orders, and he wrote a manual of spiritual practices. And he just wanted to develop that devotion. So whereas, if you remember back when we looked at monasticism, uh, most Catholic orders followed Benedictine rules, and they were in monasteries. Ignatius, he wanted to send people out on mission. So he developed what he found created was a four-week guide of spiritual practices or spiritual exercises. And he kind of divided them this way. So if you look in your notes, we have week one. He talked about confession and repentance. Week two, the potential missionary was to uh, think on life and the teachings of Jesus. Then week three, the events would be the weeks just of Holy Week. And then in week four, they were to contemplate the resurrection and the promise of heaven. So there's some things that aren't there, but those four things are definitely there through those four weeks. So go through the topics as you just look through and give me a little break from speaking. Why do you think that each one of them is part of the spiritual exercise manual? Or even if you just think of one of them, why do you think they're there? 
And so for you online, if you want to put in the chat while you think it's there, um, why would he want them to think on these things and maybe not other things? So, we able to hear that online? No, you can hear me. Okay, so David said that what he thought it was is it basically represents the whole of the Christian life as it goes through. When you look at all four of those things. Some of the things they said online is it focuses on, yeah, the critical aspects of our faith. Um, yeah, the resurrection. Because it's essential to our faith. Okay. Yeah, so confession and rep uh, repentance as well, though. He wanted to look at getting people to think about um, doing that themselves, to repent and to confess anything before they go out into the world, representing the faith. And then the life of teachings of Jesus, yeah, how are they going to represent that to people out there? And the events of Holy Week, it kind of slows down to one week in Jesus' life where you see what Jesus suffered through during that week. And then when you want to present the the future to people living in a world of pain, you represent the res repre re resurrection and the promise of heaven, what's coming happening. So Ignatius expected through this process for the potential missionary to examine themselves this whole process. It wasn't just necessarily how I'm going to represent to someone else, but it was to go through their heart, to go through the process, even through that week, to look through what Jesus walked through that week because he wanted to get them anything that would cost, could possibly be uh, an inordinate or a wrong attachment to be as forcefully removed from their hearts as, po as possible. Okay. So the idea was it's, it was to free them up from any bad habit or form of idolatry, because it was to prepare them for a lifetime of sacrificial service. And it was to create what he thought was an, what he had to be an, an unshakable devotion to the will of God and to the salvation of the soul of the missionary and of those he was presenting the life to. Okay? And so I gotta say, in the church, in, in, at CA, even short-term missions, people we have to go through, people go through a training process. So we are kind of still living that process here at, CT, at um, CA. So the first concept we're gonna look at is going to be um, sacrifice. So the most obvious risk to missionaries is the loss of all that's familiar. Home, health, family, friends. And so one of the people we're going to look at is, you see C.T. Studd. He's probably one of the most famous missionaries um, that we look at, back at. So now Lewis, when he did his um, study, he said he noted that 
couples tended to be more successful as a mission team than when they were sent out as individuals. And that's one reason why evangelical uh, missions tended to be so successful when they started out that way. Um, and for many reasons, we thought, well, number one, it was that because it could show how, what family life looked like and what marriage looked like within a Christian marriage, especially in communities that were really broken. Another thing, it was, it was a source of support for each other. They could lean on each other as they leaned on God, as they did in their marriage. Um, but we can see for C.T. Stud and his wife, in many cases, even marriage and children were second or even neglected when it came to mission work. So C.T. was actually Charles Taylor Stud, and he actually lived a life of unbelievable British privilege. He was a very famous cricket player, and he had incredible wealth, but uh, he left it to work in China. And that's where he met his wife, his fellow missionary, Priscilla Livingston Stewart. And she was equally committed to missions. Once he gave his inheritance away, they got married. And this was quite the inheritance. And I think this is important to point out because if it was me and I was going on a mission, I would probably keep my inheritance because I know I would tell myself, I'll use it. I'll use it for God. And I will never run out of money and I will just spend it all on my mission. But CT didn't say it that way because what he realized was he said we have to give it away because we have to be what he called re recklessly devoted to God's provision that we would give it away and he gave it to things like the Salvation Army in Britain before he left and he left and he went to China and his wife and he both thought we're going to be dependent on what God provides and that's it and so uh, they did this so even though they had five children and money was not necessarily coming in all the time, the work came first. When Priscilla lost a baby in childbirth, she actually refused to cry in front of Charles for fear that it would unhinge him and take his mind off work. So they were committed, like I said, they called, they called it reckless Christianity. So in 1900, after serving in China, they moved to India, and this was a pattern with stud. Um, and they went actually eventually back to England, but that's where she ran the home office. But then he moved on to southern Sudan in Africa, and then moved on to the Belgian Congo further south in Africa. Um, so while he was there, he translated the Bible into local languages. And that's another thing you'll see through missions, is, is when it, it goes so that it is as well received as possible by the people there and understood by them. He set up mission stations as he went along, and he trekked thousands of miles. He preached several times a week, and he planted churches. And he lived like the locals. We didn't live in a plantation station or anything. He lived like the locals in the very harsh conditions of the Congo. And he usually worked about 18 hours a day. Um, over the last 13 years of his life, CT only saw Priscilla for two weeks. That's not two weeks every year. That's two weeks. When he went home on furlough, so he went back, she was actually bedridden with heart problems, and he left her that way to return to Africa. And from the sounds of it, what she wrote, she didn't um, begrudge this. And in fact, she, she was bedridden at some point, and she prayed about it and prayed to get better in order to keep the mission running from her end. And that was their incredible devotion to God and to a marriage that is really a challenge, I think, to a lot of people who are married. Now, lest you think this was all appreciated. It wasn't. Um, one thing we learned through this course is the importance of patience, even under suffering. And they had to be patient because locals resisted what they were presented. They resisted the gospel. 
You gotta wonder with an 18 hour workday, co-workers resented Stud for, his, for that. And the home office at one point eventually accused him of fanaticism, inflexibility and mismanagement because he's following reckless Christianity, this, this concept he has. At his worst point, he was addicted to morphine and for the pain. And even when his daughter and son-in-law came to help him, he ended up firing them because he said he, they were not as committed. Um, and he wrote, this was a very, I mean, the lowest of low for him. He wrote, my heart seems worn out and bruised beyond repair. And in my deep loneliness, I often wish to be gone. But in 1925, they had a prayer meeting and it all changed. It was like the mission was reborn. Other missionaries became as zealous as CT and the gospel took hold, the church grew, and the Congolese themselves, they drove, dove deep into discipleship. And the ministry ended up expanding from Congo to other countries. Now Stud, he's the one that actually, he got the quote at the very beginning. He wrote, he said, some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to rest, run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Um, so that was, that was his zealousness for, for God and for the Lord and for missions. Um, and he once said, he's, he had that famous quote where he said, he wanted to live in a way so that when he died, all hell rejoiced that he was out of the fight. So, and he worked his, until his death in 1931. And even at his funeral, it wasn't about him. He, they said, never would we break the fellowship of the gospel. Never would we cease our labors for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, Stead, uh, his experience, you should make us reflect, though, on what suffering is. Suffering is, yeah, was a part of his life, and it's a part of the mission's experience. And we know um, what we'll walk through in our faith. But we have to reflect on what that actually means for us and what sacrifice is. In Christianity, we always have to remember in our faith that this greatest sacrifice was made for us. It's not made by us. And Stead's mission work and his constant move to find, like, almost a new mission field every time was a response in gratitude and in love to what Jesus had done for him. Okay? And so that, for him, the cross, and it frees us. It freed him and it frees us. But it also compels us to want to sacrifice and serve in turn. So if you look back on his life, and in the book, if you haven't gotten it yet, there's other examples of other missionaries like this. Um, you've got to ask yourself, what does, going into 2022, what does sacrifice look for you? What does missions look like for you? It might be a financial sacrifice. It might be stepping out in faith and uh, taking leadership in your life group. It might be leading an alpha table. It might be leading at kids' church or something like that. So that's something you can think about. And this is a well uh, we can draw from. So now one thing that did was he moved from place to place. And you're going to look at another missionary now. Uh, named Mary Slester, and she had that desire too. Now, um, for her moving from place to place, and just like Stud, some of them, when they go, they go for the rest of their lives. Um, so she found herself standing between two communities or, or two cultures. So she was somewhat and somewhat but contemporary time to study. And what you find is they go between these two communities, and she didn't really fit in either one. Now, she was a multi-dimensional missionary. She acted almost ending up as a diplomat between the British presence in Africa and the tribal communities around her in Nigeria. 
Now this is incredible. We consider that unlike Stud, who was educated at Cambridge and was brought up a very privileged life and was brought up as a, as a British male in, in a British empire, um, she was a working class girl from Scotland who had to quit school when her father died to work in a factory to support her family. And she worked there for 14 years before she got the opportunity to go on mission to replace her brother as a missionary in Nigeria. But that's because he died in 1876, and that's how she got to take his place. Now, and this is one thing though true, in, in the missions, evangelical missions, women had a role in these, um, which is something that was, was great. Um, when, when she arrived in Nigeria though, she was deeply troubled by what she saw. She saw the enslavement of women, there was such thing as twin murder because often they believed that when a twin was born, one of them was the result of a demonic curse. So they would be left to the elements to die after they were born. There was child abandonment, um, there was, uh, which is you know, common in, in very poor circumstances. There was polygamy and there was justice by ordeal. So there's no legal system set up that, that you could really turn to. But she also looked at it, and she didn't just criticize that. She criticized the civilized countries that she saw profiting off of what was happening there. And what she saw was the moral devastation of humanity. Um, and she was frustrated by anything. It was the Western indifference and the apathy to what was going on there. And she just like studs, she, she started out working on the coast, and then she went to even more remote communities inland. And in fact, she went to one community and she went there because the missionaries that were there before her were murdered. And she ended up in that place. But she had such a heart for God and such a heart for the people that she, she met there. Um, she, what she did is she would gain the trust of the local people and she would, she would integrate right into the community. So she learned the local languages just like Stud did. She went barefoot. She never used mosquito netting and she never drank boiled water. So she spread the gospel, but she also worked to improve trade and the legal system and the life of the women abandoned children she met. She herself took in dozens of abandoned kids and she abused, and sorry, she adopted four children, four daughters. She had so much influence among the colonial British authorities at this time that, and the local population that she was actually chosen to be the vice consul of the tribal court system they were setting up because she was so trusted by both sides. Now, she only returned to Scotland to recuperate from malaria or to take care of her sick mother and sister. So she'd do what a lot of um, missionaries did when they were on furlough. She would go from town to town, from church to church to talk about her life in Nigeria. Um, she got back to Africa both her mom and her sister died. And she wrote now that she had no one left in Britain, therefore. So she said, heaven's actually now nearer to me than Britain. And there's no one to worry about me when I go up country. So she worked for nearly a decade there before she actually saw her first convert. But the school that she built, it wasn't necessarily what Mary did. It was that she built a school. And that produced local Christian leaders. And that, in turn, became a church of thousands. Now, she actually acquired, like a, a lot of people traveling through Africa, she, she acquired malaria, and she contracted it very early in her mission life. And so for the rest of her life, she had a lingering fever, and she had very poor health for the following four decades she lived as a missionary there. And she actually died in the mission field with her adopted children by her side. Now, what she did was she, when you look back on what she wrote, uh, she 
she didn't conform to what she saw around her, but she accommodated only enough to be able to introduce the faith, Christian faith and the values. Um, by the time she died, there was a thriving Christian community, a prosperous economy, peace between the tribal groups, and a reliable court system that protected children and protected slaves. But she personally lived in a type of no man's land because she was no longer British and she was also never African. So I gotta ask, do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like you really don't belong at times to the community you live in or the community you work in or the space you find yourself in? And if it is, could that be a part of your discipleship process? Could that be a part of, of being on mission? I don't know. Do any of you ever feel that way? No? I see, out here I see nodding heads. I don't know, what do you think? So I can sh show you some of the comments people have. Um, yeah. Living as an exile is the call of the Christian. Yeah. That's a great line. Mm. Yeah. And, mm. Okay. Yeah. But, but it's, a, it's a good point you're making, Sharon. A lot of these missionaries, mm -hmm. and, I, and I've met a lot of missionaries, and they're awkward mm -hmm. because they don't quite fit anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but there's that, that because they got one foot in one mm -hmm. ball and one foot in the other. Yeah. Ball, okay. Yeah. 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 And that's part of 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 knowing. Yeah, it's part of our faith, I think, a little bit. Yeah, and as Raylan, Roland said, yeah, it's part of being a sojourner. And I often think of like the missionaries, if they reminded me of anybody, it was almost like of the, the Desert Fathers as well, is that, um, yeah, that what can set you apart can also be something what God, that God can use in you to make great change. But yeah, we're sojourners, and this is just another example. Or Kevin Davis wrote, Philippians 3.20, their citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Okay. But at the same time, for her to do what she was able to do. But it is, as someone noted here, that a lot of times back then, like Mary Slester, she got the opportunity when a man f did not take the opportunity or fell away from the opportunity. And so there, yeah, there's one, that's one thing you see through the movement of missionaries is that you see a role for women sometimes very early. Um, in then you maybe see in the church, and she actually had um, a lot of tension of that with the church in Scotland. And most of the uh, at this time, like mm -hmm. the late 19th century, and early 20th century, mm -hmm. the majority of missionaries are women. Ah, interesting. Yeah, so most, most, yeah. And they're able to exercise gifts yeah. that they could never exercise at home, yeah. they're able to do so. So David's saying that in that period of time, there's actually more female ministries, and they're able to exercise gifts abroad that they couldn't home. So that's interesting. Okay, so we're looking at another topic, and that's just translating, the idea of translation. And when the most famous for that would have been the th three of the four missionaries we're going to look at, and that's William Carey. And we're going back, actually, to um, the 18th century to look at um, William Carey. So he's famous, you probably heard this expression, expect great things for God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And he lived up to his motto. Um, when he's, he was commissioned by the Baptist Missionary Society to go to India, he had no money, he had no formal education, and he had no training. Um, and in fact, 
His church and his father didn't want him to go. And in fact, when he talked to his um, pastor, when he talked to his church leader about it, he was told that he shouldn't go. Young man, sit down, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert them, he'll do it without consulting me or you. But he responded by saying, wasn't the command given to the apostles to teach all nations obligatory on all succeeding ministers to the end of the world? And wasn't the accompanying promise to equal extent? And he actually, it prompted him to write one of the best defenses of the Great Commission ever written. And this is interesting because, of course, he was actually had no formal education. Um, so he wanted to go to India. His wife did not want to go either. She was pregnant at the time. Um, so she agreed with his father. And actually, the East India Company didn't want missionaries where he was going to go because it would get into the way, in the way of the commercial interests of the British Empire. But so Kerry, he went anyway. And his actually the first years were absolutely miserable. Uh, he lived in poverty and actually at one point had to stop and work in a factory. His wife did eventually join him, but um, the whole family was plagued by disease. And they lost their son to dysentery, and actually she never got over it. it. She never got over it. And she died in India, and he married again. And that wife died in India, and so did more children. But he never left, even when the mission board pulled support. And one thing he said about himself is he said, uh, he, he wasn't educated, he knew that, but he said, I can plod and I can persevere. And he was known for being persistent. And he was also, he probably wouldn't see it back then, but he was obviously very gifted in languages. And he diligently studied the language and the culture of India. So he learned Sanskrit and Bengali to translate the Bible. And other missionaries joined him in this, and they translated the Bible into six other languages, and then parts of the Bible into 29 others. But Kerry went further, and he actually translated major works of Indian literature, or sub uh, South Asian literature, into English, and to other languages in the subcontinent. And he learned so much that despite his lack of formal education, he was actually appointed a college professor. And he and his team of, of translators, they contribute to a renaissance in Indian literature. So the, the whole country benefited by what he brought. And he was a man ahead of his time. And I've got to give him credit because translation work is really fraught with tension. Because some things, they can't be translated literally. Um, so those of you, if any of you speak other languages, you know this. Um, now also some unconditional beliefs, they can be confusing or culturally threatening to the target language no matter how diplomatically or wisely it's expressed. Right? Um, it can be really difficult for the established community of faith to accept the linguistic and cultural adaptations necessary to fit the needs and the concepts of the target community. And trying to separate the tenets of faith from po political and cultural beliefs and practices can seem very threatening or incomprehensible. And we can see that even today. Um, but it has to be done, and it's been done successfully. Because in 1800, about 2% of the world's Christian were non-European white people. Today, it's close to 70%. So this is, this works. So we're going to look. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, his wife did not want to go to India. No, she did not want to go to India. Yeah. So actually, we've got some comments here. Yeah? Well, I would say his wife no, no. She was five months pregnant when he brought up the idea. And, and uh, he was just about ready, ready to leave, and she kind of joined him at the mm -hmm. class.
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got to wonder if her, her and then losing the child, it wasn't for her constant regret yeah. on her part. Yeah. Yeah, which is another, it's amazing how he persevered through that. Yeah. The loss of his family. Yeah. yeah. So there's comments. So it's a long comment there. <laughs> it is messy yeah. when yeah. you have a missionary where one, 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 one is yeah. one. Yeah. 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 William Carey? Yeah, I think there's a seminary. Isn't there a seminary? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. He's very, very well known. Yeah. So, a lot, yeah. There's a movie on the internet of Carey. I wonder how much history shows that his wife actually went crazy after. Yeah, yeah. I am being, um, I am being, uh, I'm cutting some out of it. Yeah, but actually, yeah, she actually. It, it drove her to distraction. It drove her to um, a level of mental illness that would have been, you can imagine in the 18th century being able to provide relief for that. Absolutely, yeah. And you think of the conditions back then that they were all working under and the, the social, the cultural constraints, even in Britain. I, I think it's amazing also that some of them may think that the, a real temptation, I would imagine if I would back then, is if I was coming from the British Empire, would be to not be able to separate out the values of my, of my culture from the, what is essential to Christianity. And actually for the next missionary we look at, Pandita Ramabai, um, she actually, there was, there was tension in that for her, for what exactly am I being asked to do here? So we're gonna look at one. And, uh, and that's actually Pandita Ramabai, and Pandita is actually an honorific. And you see she's, put a, she's on a, um, a stamp in India, and we're getting to 100, the 100th year of her, almost the 100th year of her death. Uh, now, despite the efforts of um, missionaries like Kerry, uh, in India, it, the country remained predominantly Hindu by the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, one thing you think of for a lot of the ministries that came from the West is that it was almost like they lit a match or they lit a candle, and it was that others drew from the candle later on in the communities they're in. So she um, was a, a, a key figure in India, and she was deeply respected throughout the country before she became a Christian because she was the first woman to be given the title of Pandita, and that's a scholar in Sanskrit. Um, because she, but she was moved when she went through the country when she saw the suffering of the most vulnerable in India, and she wanted to prove their lives through education. So to do that, she thought, I have to study English, and so she did that with a Christian woman. Then she went to England to study even further. And while there, she went to a rescue shelter, and she saw how the women were treated, and she saw that women were treated with compassion and with dignity, and she was, and she really was moved by that. And she saw the way Christians treated them. And she wrote that they're not dealt kindly this way enough in, in India. The law of the Hindu commands that they shall be fallen women and live on the outskirts of town. They're considered the greatest sinners and not worthy of compassion. But her hosts pointed out that Jesus taught in, in John 4, and he spoke with the Samaritan woman, and that passage really touched her. So she started studying the Bible, and eventually she was baptized. And she wrote, what good news for me, a woman, that 
um, that there's hope for the likes of me. The Bible declares that Christ did not reserve this great salvation for a particular caste or for a particular sex. And so she went back to India and she started a school for widows. And during a famine in 1896, she ended up using her money to buy a 100-acre farm in Ketagon to protect about 1,350 destitute women, child widows, and orphans from starvation. And she founded the Mukti Mission, and that's where desperate, destitute women and children, irrespective of their background, are accepted, cared for, transformed, and empowered to be salt and light in society. Now, it still exists today. You can still go visit this mission, and it still provides services to vulnerable women and children. So Ramabe, she herself, she learned Greek and Hebrew because she wanted to produce her own uh, Marathi translation of the Bible and for it to be as, as, um, uh, as, as well-written as possible for the people. And then she asked Christians in England to pray for India because she'd heard about the revival in Wales, and she thought, we need a revival in India. So she started a prayer circle in 1905, and they devoted every morning to prayer for a revival in India. So at first, about 250 girls gathered regularly for prayer. Then that number grew to about 550 girls. And then within two months, there were 1,200 converts, conversions to Christianity. And then the revival spread to other parts of India during this time. And so she remains uh, this, this beautiful first example that we see of the, the start and the growth of the indigenous church in India. Um, so I guess my question now is if you look at them, look through them, and some of you have come in groups of two or groups of three, if you want to talk about what have you noticed about the missionaries so far? And what can you take them from them as inspiration for your mission field? And so if you're online, you can write it in the chat. Yeah, absolutely. One person points out that life is really lonely. Yeah. Yeah. Another, but they seem fearless. Another, yeah, Lori noted they not only bring the gospel, but they also work to address practical needs of the people around them. So in Natalia noticed that they're resilient and they're driven. Dedicated. dedicated, yeah. Absolutely dedicated, yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, okay, so she, not really part of a denomination, so she'd gone to England, and she was in the Anglican Church, and that's where she actually was converted. But then when she went back to India, she started her mission. But I'm not sure what her, if she would be a denomination there, but she probably remained with the Anglican mission, I would imagine. Yeah, with the Anglican mission. And that's, that is another kind of point you can see, is often they ended up, why do you think they would often end up in... Um, intention or uh, having difficulties with their own mission boards and with people back home. What do you think were some of the challenges to that? Some of the mission boards have no concept yeah. of what they had to put up with out there. 
Yeah. 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 No, that's okay. So, um, and it's Mike, right? Mike. Yeah. So Mike had said that people back home have no concept to what they're living through. They're very comfortable back home relative to what's going on where the, these missionaries often are. Yeah, absolutely. They would say that. Yeah. Communication was an issue. Because oh, yeah. The thing we don't realize is how long it took yes. to communicate to, you know, um, I'm thinking of Hudson Taylor mm -hmm. in China. There's a big issue with his support group back mm -hmm. home. And a lot of it was through miscommunication. So it took so long for yeah. letters to get to places. Yeah, so David said one thing, just the practical issue of communication, because it would take weeks to get information back and forth. And absolutely, even for example, if you think of William Wilberforce, that was one complaint they had when they had sent reports back about what was happening, and that people couldn't also imagine it being true, what they'd heard. They just couldn't imagine it because they couldn't picture it. It often left, like for example, Mary Slessor, it left her very frustrated. She would go back on furlough and not understand why she wasn't getting, I think, that the impassioned response that she often, so often wanted. So that was really hard for her. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the other thing. People get very stuck in their ideas of what other people need, as opposed to listening to what other people, uh, what they, they say themselves they want. I remember being somewhere else and, and somebody saying, it's so nice not to hear somebody say, well, in Canada, we da-da-da-da-da. It's almost that passive Canadian way of saying you're doing it wrong. Sorry, you were going to say? Uh, yeah, also the Yeah. So you have many layers of mm -hmm. administration and so on, and like a lot of bureaucracies, things are on a primary level, due to uh, uh, levels of communication and the layers that are very far removed from the people that are overseas. Yeah. The, the other thing is a lot of missionaries are women, and a lot of people on the boards are men. Yeah, okay, so we have two, if you didn't hear that for people online, two things that are pointed out. Number one, mission boards are by their nature bureaucratic. So there are layers of bureaucracy, layers of decision makers, and layers of and procedures to go through to make decisions, right? Did I read that correctly? But secondly, and all, another problem that's pointed out is that these mission boards tend to be run by men, and so, a lot of these missionaries are women. And you've got that layer of, um, of who's, who's running the show here, and who is in charge here, and who's making the decision. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're looking at, uh, and the idea as well is the idea of they're blessing the communities with their skills. That's another thing. Is it's not just finding, but using what they can. Um, so we're going to look and change a little bit of a uh, take a turn here. We're going to look at majority missions, majority world missions. So the Jerusalem Council clarified forevermore that faith is not bound to one language, to one culture, or to one people group. Okay. And in the 21st century, we now have people from all nations leading others to Christ. So Stetler writes in his book, the indigenization process that began with the Jerusalem Council has prevailed. So we see a shift in focus on seeing missions as a Western church imperative to seeing it also being part of a whole church imperative. And the CMA, our denomination, is part of it. Uh, I, the world online can be a really... Uh, a really wild place where a lot is not great, but one thing that 
there is, is if you do follow on Facebook, there's, um, the Alliance has a presence. And they've got the Alliance Canada and this just, uh, and uh, the Alliance Missions on Facebook as well. And so I, these I found just while we were doing this research. And one is like, for example, our new training centers in South Asia. These are centers where they equip and send indigenous church planters to reach communities for Christ. And I saw it was the Jaffray. What is the Jaffray project? Well, Robert A. Jaffray, you can see in the second post, he was imprisoned in an internment camp in Indonesia during World War II. And so while he was there, though, during his suffering, God gave him a vision to bring the gospel to a new country. However, he died before it could happen. So today, there's a school named after him, and a student's been called to finish the mission. And if you go online, you can see this amazing video of this young woman um, who wants to reach her country for Christ, and she wants to reach other areas, parts of her country that haven't necessarily have a, have, have a Christian present yet. And so that's a country of like, I looked it up last night, 275 million. Um, where there is a Christian presence, but not through the whole country. And she wants to, she wants to be a part of that, and she's part of our, our denomination. So, and you probably know, uh, you can pray for the missionaries through our, our, our denomination. And we have indigenous churches in Mexico, and you've probably heard this, Pastor Tomas and, and Brenna Granados, and they're denominational leaders in Mexico. I don't know if you really know. Yeah, they do run a church, but they, they travel a lot through the country. That's a lot of their work, training and discipling local and indigenous leaders to reach others for Christ. So a lot of them are just regular folk who attend uh, a church in a rural community. Like you'll see in the picture, that's Julio Garcia. And so if you've ever read for or, or prayed for the missionaries that are out there, he's one of the names that's there. And he lives in the Copper Canyon. So he is a Tara Umara itinerant preacher, and he goes from one indigenous community to another to spread the word. So in Seboyin, uh, where he is, he is in one location, the church services are in Tara Umara in uh, the local language. The music's very different from what you would hear here. And the pastors and the members are all local. And the Bible was translated into that language for, by a local woman named Victoria. In Zacatecas, further to the south, the indigenous pastors are building a house of refuge in Temposa for those who are coming to the faith. The community is actually quite hostile to Christianity, and the pastors have been threatened. Um, when someone comes to faith there, they're often ostracized and isolated. And in a poor community, that means starving at times, because no one will provide you with food or employment. But um, the missionaries that are there, they're, they're, they're the local people there, are meeting needs. And when you provide financially through missions, you're helping them to do that. So financial support is one way you can show your support for missions. But another way it can be to volunteer your time, volunteer your skills, short-term missions. And um, that's all open to us. But missions isn't necessarily going overseas. It's serving in our community around us. And so that's what we have. So any comments we got that you have about that so far? Yeah, so somebody here says to get involved, we A, learn about missions. From where we live, we get involved where I live. Get involved by going. Get involved in different projects. And praying for missions is a key, totally. Uh, and Denisa, 
The church has sadly developed a language that resulted in a formulaic approach to evangelism rather than the practices that spoke of human participation in a process that honors the rhythms of the Spirit's work. Not so deep. So, I, sometimes when I've read about these missionaries, I, I feel almost like um, I'm unworthy and that um, what they've done is really hard. But one thing that Stetler points out is that risk doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be grandiose. Um, it can and it probably should start small. Now, Stead, when he started, he took a risk when he became involved in the student movement in England. And Slesser, uh, Mary, she started by working with street kids in Scotland. And Kerry, even though he wasn't ed very well formally educated, he began to work as a lay preacher. And they weren't thinking at that time about traveling far or leaving their country or going to the other side of the world, at least not first, because they believed that the world God loves and wants to redeem is just outside their front door. And it is for us too. So you can think of that. So as your takeaway, I thought that uh, if you could read and meditate sometime this week on Acts 1.8 and ask yourself, where is Jerusalem, where is Judea, and where is Samaria for you? And then to read and meditate on Matthew 28, 16 to 20, and pray about your mission field, and ask God how you could start with a small risk, and then watch how God moves you through from there. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.